I uh, appreciate Byron uh, filling in while we were gone last week, and uh, thank him for doing that. And it is good to be back, um, back home. Uh, help me out this morning, okay? Scripture says, where there is no vision, the people perish, okay? Perish is a nice word. It means croak. It means die. It means expire. It means you're not here any longer. And, and I just got to tell you, if God had left it up to me, I would have written that scripture differently because it's just not real pleasant. But it is really, really plain. It's real straightforward. The Bible tells us that where vision does not exist, life will not exist very long. And that principle is true in all aspects of our life. Companies with no vision cease to operate after a given period of time. You, you've, um, you've heard of those and you, you've seen those. Um, when, when there's no vision for the future, when there's no plan and there's no adapting and there's no change and, and modification, those companies fall by the wayside. And, you know, it seems like it happens really quickly now as, as technology advances so rapidly. Where there's no vision, marriages perish. Where there's no plan, and there's no growth, and there's no uh, adapting, we see families unfortunately die. And where there is no vision, a church will perish. It's not something that we like to think about, but it's absolutely the truth this morning. Having vision Having spiritual insight, if you will, has to be one of the things that is absolutely necessary for a church to grow and to carry out the Great Commission and to be in step with God. We've got to be able to see forward and plan accordingly. It's one of the things that Scripture speaks to Many, many times. And I, want to, I want us to look at a story in the Old Testament this morning where someone is uh, about to encounter that very thing. If you've got your Bibles and you want to read with me, look in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings in chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And I'm going to read a couple of verses beginning in 15. Scripture says, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's one of those, those 
verses that needs repeating this morning. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We're in the middle of the story. Elisha's God's man for this particular time. And people who oppose God and the things of God are working overtime to get Elisha out of the way. There's a king of Aram, and he has dispatched the army that we read about uh, to this, this particular area. The area was called Dothan. That's not real important this morning unless you just, you know, like to put a name with a face, so to speak. But Elisha was camped there, and he, he evidently was camped there with what the Bible refers to as his servant. Now, I want us to understand that we can tell by the context this morning that this person, whomever he may have been, was not a servant in the sense that we think of as a slave or as someone who's just hired to do a job. Uh, probably a, a better word or a clearer word would be uh, an apprentice to Elisha. This is someone that Elisha had invested some time in, had a relationship with, was mentoring, uh, and that he cared about. So uh, when this, this young person, whomever he may be, wakes up in the morning, he sees the army that had been dispatched by the evil king, and he knows why they're there. He knows exactly what their intention is, and it's simply to do away with Elisha and everybody that has anything to do with him. And so, you know, we get this picture of him just running to Elisha, and, and he says, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The first thing Elisha tells him is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are against us. I think that's one of the things that we need to be reminded of in the world that we live in. You can turn the television on and watch the news and really come away quickly with the thought that we're outnumbered. Anybody ever feel that way? Sometimes it seems like we're outnumbered in this world. That the people who love God and stand for God are... Um, not as prevalent as they used to be in the things that we hold to be fundamentally true. Other people um, debate and dispute and things of that nature. And we can come away, if we're not careful, thinking that we're outnumbered. Elisha reminded the young man that's not the case. And the reason that they weren't outnumbered is because of the number one. They weren't outnumbered because they were with God. And regardless of how the landscape in our world may change over the next several years, we will never be outnumbered as long as we are with God. But I digress. The young man runs to Elisha. He's, he's panicked. He asks him what we're, what we're going to do. And then Elisha does something really odd. Really strange. Not that he prayed. I mean, that, that, that's normal. That seems like the right thing to do. But it's what he prayed for. 
He said, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. Now, we have to know, again, from the context that this young person had physical eyesight because he saw the bad army, right? All right? So that's not what Elisha's praying for. Elisha's praying that his spiritual eyes be open so that he could see, and this is key, guys, not what God was going to do, but what God had already done. The angelic army, the chariots of fire that were there for Elisha's protection were there a long time before this kid got up that morning. And sometimes we need to be reminded and we need to have our eyes open to the fact that God's plan is already in motion and that he has things in the works that we're oblivious to, but nonetheless they are there and they are there for our provision and we just need to simply be able to see how God has already rectified the situation, how he's already taken care of things. And that's the one thing that Elisha prayed for. I got to tell you, if I'm Elisha, I might have prayed for something else. I might have prayed, Lord, um, just go ahead and get rid of that army, the, the bad one, the one that's here to get me. Or, or even, you know, Lord, calm this guy's fears. Let him understand. Make him so that he's not afraid. Anything. Supernatural things were not abnormal for Elisha and his relationship with God. If we had started earlier in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, we would have read the story about when the, um, the axe head made of stone floats in the water. I think Elisha could have asked God for just about anything, and God would have done it for him. And knowing that, he said, Lord, open his eyes. Let him see you. I think that tells us how important vision is to our God and how important it is for us to have that this morning. There's some things that happen to us in life sometimes that cause our vision not to be as sharp and not to be as keen as it should be. One of those things, from a spiritual standpoint, is that sometimes, without realizing it, we wear, spiritually speaking, we wear rose-colored glasses. There's an old song about that, Shane. Rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show only the beauty, hide all the truth. Rose-colored glasses from a spiritual standpoint are those things that we allow in our life that begin to alienate us in our walk, in our relationship on a daily basis with God. They're things that take our time that we should be devoting to him. They take our attention, and they're subtle, and before you know it, we see everything through a colored prism rather than seeing things clearly. A lot of different synonyms 
for rose-colored glasses this morning. But the Bible, again, is pretty plain. The Bible says it's sin. It's not one of those ugly words like perish. The Bible says it's sin when we allow things that are not of God to have a place in our lives that before we realize it, obscure our ability to see what God is doing. And i got to be honest with you, folks, this is a tough crowd to talk to about sin. I mean, let's just be honest. We don't, we don't have a room full of bank robbers in here, do we? We don't have a, a room full of people that have lived their lives intentionally doing things to hurt other people. Our sins won't be on the news tonight. And so, again, it's a cloudy perspective for us. It's a rose-colored perspective for us. We can call them habits, and we can call them um, choices, and we can use all kinds of words for it, but regardless of whether or not our sin will be on the news tonight, what we have to remember is that our sin was on the cross at Calvary. That the things that I do in my life that may not be real noteworthy, may not be real sensational, may not take any airtime or newspaper time or internet time are the very things that hung Jesus on the cross. And when I allow those things to have a place in my life that I don't see as clearly as I need to see. Rose-colored glasses will obscure our vision. Spiritual sunglasses will obscure our vision. What are sunglasses designed to do? Well, to some people, they're designed to, to make us look really, really cool. Okay, because we spend a lot of money on them. But actually, sunglasses are designed so that we can be comfortable when we're outside in the sun. We don't have to squint. We don't have to uh, you know, block our eyes. We don't have to turn our face away. Sunglasses are designed to make us comfortable when we're in the presence of the sun. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we apply that same principle to our spiritual vision, it might be problematic. Because if I get comfortable in my walk with God, if I get comfortable in my relationship with God, and, I, and don't misunderstand this morning, I'm not talking about having peace, okay? God wants us to have peace in our lives, and he wants us to be at peace with him. But I can't find anywhere in Scripture where somebody encountered Jesus and had a real comfortable experience with him. Anytime somebody met Jesus, it required something of them. It was a stretch for them. They had to do things differently. They had to think differently. They had to look at things differently than they had before. Some of them had to completely give up the way of life that they had been used to uh, for decades and decades when they met God. I just don't believe we're intended to be comfortable in the presence of the Son of Almighty God. 
And the reason I say that this morning is because comfort is about a half step removed from complacency. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Football has not started yet. I'm hanging on. Just got a few more weeks. So sometime this afternoon, when I get home, okay, I will turn the television on to something that I have absolutely no interest in. Okay? And the volume will be lower than normal. And I will assume a position in my recliner. And I will kick the gear shift down into low. And soon, I will be the definition of comfortable. The only noise you'll hear will be a slight snore coming from me. I've been told when I'm in that position, I don't get a lot done. Well, I wonder if when we're comfortable in our position with God, if we don't get a lot done. Spiritual sunglasses can cause us to miss what God is up to. What are you talking about, a shame? Well, won't that be a shame someday when we get to heaven and we say, God, how come you never did this? Or God, how come I never saw you do that? And God looks at us and said, you were asleep. You were snoring in the recliner when I was doing that. Spiritual sunglasses can hamper our vision and our ability to see God. Sometimes we just need a whole new lens. Now, a few weeks ago, I had cataract surgery. Well, let, me, let me issue a disclaimer. There's two kinds of cataracts, okay? One is because you're really old. That was not the kind I had, okay? When you get the, the old cataracts, then your vision just goes really, really dark, okay? When you get the kind of cataracts that I had, your vision gets really cloudy, you can still see light, but you can't distinguish anything. And that's the point that I'd gotten to, especially in my left eye. I, I literally could not see anything out of my left eye. And um, it, it just it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I kept putting it off, and I didn't want to have to deal with it. And I wasn't familiar with the procedure. Um, anytime you use the word surgery, that doesn't sound like a fun day. Um, I knew it was going to be expensive, all that kind of stuff. And I, so I just procrastinated. And like normally, when you procrastinate, things just got worse. Pretty soon it wasn't just my left eye, but it was both eyes. Had to give up and go have the surgery done. Takes six, seven minutes at the most. Now, I'd lived this way six or seven months, okay? It's nothing, absolutely nothing to it. And I've literally gone from not being able to see at all out of one eye. When I went back for a checkup a couple of weeks ago, my vision is now 20-20. 
I don't wear contacts anymore. I don't wear glasses anymore. I don't lose glasses anymore. I used to have glasses everywhere except on my eyes where I needed them. I have a new lens. I have a new perspective. And maybe that's hard for you to appreciate this morning, but I'm telling you right now, when I walked in there before surgery, I cannot read the big E on the top of the chart. That is no exaggeration. Six or seven minutes later, I can read the very last line. And I'm not talking about the PLFMOZ. I'm talking about Made in Japan, 1942, okay? I can see, brother. I can see. Because they took the old lens out and they put a new one in and I have a totally different perspective now. My eyes work in a way that they were not working before. Sometimes our spiritual vision is hampered because we're trying to see things through a damaged earthly lens rather than the new perspective that Christ offers us through salvation. You see, Elisha prayed that day, Lord, don't let him see through his own eyes. Let him see through yours. Let him have your perspective on this situation. Help him to be able to see what you see. And that's exactly what we need this morning. In my opinion, one of the people in Scripture with incredible spiritual vision, ironically, was a man who was physically blind. Let me read that to you this morning. This is from Mark's Gospel in chapter 10. Verse 46, it says, Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I want us to really understand the gravity of this individual's position. I would think losing your eyesight or not having your eyesight would be um, perhaps one of the, the toughest things that anybody could ever encounter. It would be very hard to deal with even in the 21st century, but I really can't do it justice when we look at it from the first century before there was medical help and assistance and things of that nature. Bartimaeus sat in the same spot every day for years and years and years, unable to see anything existing only by the crumbs that people would throw at him. He had no means of self-support. He had no way to better himself. He was, in, in every sense of the word, folks, he was completely helpless. There was nothing he could do to improve his lot in life. 
And if that's not the picture of the sinner before he's saved by grace, I don't know what is. You see, we're helpless apart from Jesus. We have nothing within our own power that can bring us one inch closer to him. We have no means whatsoever to access an eternity from the hell that we deserve in and of ourselves. Bartimaeus was us. He was there physically, but we're there spiritually before we meet Christ. And Bartimaeus did the one thing that he knew how to do. When he heard Jesus was in town, the Bible says that he cried out. That's another nice phrase. It means he yelled. In East Texas, we'd say he hollered. It was not pretty. It was not pleasant. We know that because other people are telling him, literally, be quiet. You're, you're, you're making a scene here. You're making a nuisance of yourself. You're making a fool of yourself. Be quiet. So what did Bartimaeus do? He yelled louder. That's all he could do. That's awful good news for us today. That's awful good news. Because when we get to the point where we can't do anything but cry out to God, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Don't ever be hesitant to yell to your father and tell him that you need him. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, in my opinion, contains the two most powerful words in all the scripture. Verse 49 says, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. In the midst of the chaos and the crowd and the confusion and the Lord's own agenda, which he knew was coming to a close and he knew that he was destined to be beaten and tortured and killed. When this guy that doesn't matter to anybody, when this guy that is completely helpless, when this guy that is dirty and poor and wretched and ragged yelled the only way he knew how to yell, the God of this universe stopped. I take a great deal of comfort in that. Because like I said, I'm part of this. I've been blind and I've been helpless. And I've been dirty and ragged and a nuisance to everybody else. And when I cry out, the only way I know how, you better believe, my Jesus stops.
and he gives me his undivided attention. Jesus stopped, and he said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, get on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he, he jumped to his feet, and he came to Jesus. Verse 51, 51 is so strange. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. What do you want me to do for you? I'd have given anything to see the expression on the disciples' faces when Jesus said that. I can just imagine Simon Peter turning to John or Andrew or whoever and going, what's wrong with Jesus? The whole town knows what this guy wants. Why did he ask such a ridiculously simple, obvious question? Why? You think Jesus didn't know? Jesus made Bartimaeus. Jesus asked Bartimaeus what he wanted, not because of what Bartimaeus was looking for, but because of what Jesus was looking for. Jesus wanted to have a conversation with him. He wanted to get personal with him. He wanted to talk about what was on his heart and what was on his mind. How cool and how awesome is that? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I, I want to see. Now you talk about a duh answer. Not real eloquent, not real profound. He didn't tell Jesus, you know, Lord, I really wish that I could see so that I could go get a job. For Lord, if I had if I had eyesight, then you know, I could be one of your disciples or I could uh, serve better in the temple. I could help the community. I, I, Bartimaeus knew better than that. He completely got it. That when you come to Jesus, you come with no bargaining power. You come with nothing to offer him. He's the one with everything to give. Just as simple and childlike as it could be, he just said, Lord, I want to see you. And it worked. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. If you've got a King James Bible this morning, I like the way it reads. Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Bartimaeus left that day with a whole lot more than physical eyesight. Because a long time before, he had sight. He had vision. A long time before, he had eyes that would work. He had eyes of faith. And a long time before he could see Jesus, he could see who Jesus was. And that's exactly the way we have to encounter him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, God, that it is within your capacity, but it's also, Father, 
within your will for us to be able to see things at times in our lives from your perspective, to know what you're doing and to be with you in that process. God, more than anything, we're grateful this morning that when we have nothing else we can do but call on you, that's all that it takes. And you can clear our perspective. And as your word says, you can make us whole. If there's anyone here this morning whose vision has been obscured by things of this life, then I pray, Father, that they would call out to you and let you touch them and make them whole. We pray these things in your name. Amen.